I see a great chance that technology will be more humane. So let's say I don't need to have a screen just to interact with something or someone. I don't need to carry a heavy device. I don't need to have desktop computer to do something which I can only do on desktop computer. So I would say that the promise of this, uh, spatial computing is to at last making the digital world and everything around it more humane, human-centric, and that compatible with us. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Rene Schulte and Botan Bognar to explore the future of spatial computing. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you with me on this episode focused on this most fascinating topic. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks, Renee. Thanks, Botan. Really excited to have two kind of future thinking, I would say, researchers, scientists, evangelists that have been really deep in this space. If we could start with some backgrounds, Renee, if we can start with you and then Botan, can you tell the listeners more about yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Rene. I'm Director of Global Innovation at Valorum Reply, where I'm leading R&D for emerging technologies like, of course, spatial computing, but also quantum computing, AI with a focus on computer vision and a couple of other things. We also have been one of the very few companies that have been working with the Microsoft HoloLens since 2015, before it was even public, and we developed some really innovative mixed reality solutions since then. Additionally, I'm also leading the spatial computing community of practice for the whole Reply group, where we have a group of people that all work together on innovative stuff in regards to virtual reality, mixed reality, augmented reality, but also things like point cloud processing, LiDAR scanning, you know, everything that is spatially computing related. And so we do a lot of innovative stuff in that space. Uh, I also have my own video podcast, um, two of them actually now. Uh, the first one is Qbytes, which is bite-sized pieces of quantum computing. And so in short episodes, like 20 minutes or so, we break down uh, these complex topics of quantum computing and want to make those approachable. And for this, I, for each episode, I invite a different expert guests. And typically, I ask three questions about a certain topic, and then we have a conversation about it. And um, the same we just did and launched for the Metaverse with the new show called Meta Minutes. And uh, well, there we talk about the Metaverse. And in fact, some of the episodes are not just video recordings, but in fact, we record them inside of an Metaverse platforms like Meta Workrooms or Outspace or a few others as well. And so um, once you're done with this podcast, you're listening to the future of, um, you might want to check out my podcast as well about Meta Minutes, for example. Hi, my name is Botond, and most recently I co-founded two startups in the space. But before that, in my previous life, I was working with architects and to create spaces, be it large or very small. Hence the, I would say, affection with spaces itself. But when it went to digital, these two startups, Rescan, which is about to digitize indoor and pedestrian spaces from a human perspective, and Pilantash, which is creating a user interface with using the eyes alone, and while the former company works with Stanford Research Institute, the one Pilantash works with NASA researchers. It's impressive. Thank you. Rene, I also noticed that you've been invited you know, maybe more than a dozen times to kind of speak on the topic at different conferences, even on TV. So it's great to have you as an expert here 
also to see that you were honored at uh, Microsoft for many awards in this space, mixed reality, kind of quantum computing. So it's impressive kind of looking at both of your backgrounds. Botand, you know, uh, working with Stanford, that's a notable name. No, working with NASA, obviously the, these spaces are on the frontier and I'm impressed looking through your background. So thanks again for being with us. If we can start with some of the basics, I just want to kind of start with today, kind of help the listeners understand this space since it's a little bit abstract and it involves lots of things kind of coming together. And then let's talk about the future since that's so exciting as we think about the impact spatial computing can have. So if we can start with a Botan, like what is spatial computing more or less? Like how does it work? I know that's kind of an abstract term. So actually, this is a very new term recently uh, been coined. And then I'm going to pull up a quote by actually one of the MIT students coined in 2003, Simon Greenwald. And he says, human interaction with a machine in which the machine retains and manipulates references in real objects in spaces. More plainly put, I would say anything non-human and a machine interacting with spaces as we humans would interact, that is to navigate and understand the context. That would be something spatial computing. And it, of course, uh, maintains a lot of hardware, a lot of software, and I'm most excited about the content itself. Renee, for you, uh, how do you see the, the space of spatial computing? So um, like what Baton just said is perfectly right. But I, sometimes in my talks, I try to describe it with the, the past a little bit. Let me expand that for a moment. So basically, a lot of us got personal computers, and personal computing became a thing in the 1990s or so. A lot of people had their first computers, and it became really exciting once it became connected to each other through the internet. We could, you know, not, we could do knowledge sharing and all of this stuff. And then uh, mobile computing came along after personal computing, especially when smartphones came out. And in particular, uh, a key moment was, of course, when the first iPhone came out in 2007 with multi-touch input. And now we have computers in our pockets that are more, more powerful than the personal computers we had, right? And so we come from personal computing over mobile computing now into the so-called spatial computing age, where we can provide even more context than mobile computing provides us. So we have mobile computing devices that have GPS sensors, for example. They can provide us some contextual information while we are on the move, right? And now think about with spatial computing, we're getting intelligent edge devices. So devices that have mainly driven by AI, and a lot of that is driven by computer vision, that can analyze our surrounding in much more detail. And so they can provide us even more contextual information. And this is the key about spatial computing, like from a technology perspective, right? And it could be done with different device categories. You might say it could be mixed reality with head-mounted devices, or it could be augmented reality simply on your mobile phone and things like this, right? All of these devices have, of course, different capabilities, but they have one thing in common uh, today with AOKit and AOCore on mobile phone platforms. They can sense the world around us to a certain degree. Of course, if you have a device like a Magic Leap or HoloLens with even more sophisticated sensors, they can sense it to a higher degree. But this also includes LiDAR sensors like laser scanning and all of this, basically taking our surrounding and providing contextual information to the user, and this with a much higher precision and much more meaningful information. As we think about this being really a confluence, what are some analogies or maybe like, you know, a lot of people have seen movies, like what are some analogous movies, like scenes or things that you guys can think about that can help people connect with what we're talking about? Maybe it could be a couple examples. Well, actually, uh, a movie would be a hard one because, you know, Ready Player One is a very much VR oriented direction. But I would argue that, let's say, 
In fact, a book comes to my mind, uh, written by a, a Finnish sci-fi writer called Hanuraya Niami, The Quantum Thief. There, There is a planet Mars where a lot of entities are existing, and then you would have to put on, if you're a visitor, a device onto your head so that you can see them. And the whole point is that these entities are totally spatially aware. They are just you and me, even they have the intellectual capability. So it's another word within the world, I would say. It's another layer to the, our existing world where the entities appearing in it are very real, not only for the user, but for their effects on the user. And of course, you can talk about robots, so they don't have to be, you know, holograms or anything. You would need to have a device for a human. So the human or even a humanoid robot would be spatial computing at its very best because it has to navigate between, you know, door. it has to go through a door, has to understand not only the spatial uh, characteristics, but the content and the context as well. Maybe Minority Report to some degree, if you know that movie, it has some, some of the references. But also uh, think about... Think about actually any movie or sci-fi where you see a lot of contextual information popping up. So, well, for example, people walk down the street, you have contextual digital information that shows them relevant information. So not just like billboards that are bombarding them. We have seen a lot of dystopian things in that space. There was a lot of interesting kind of, you know, sci-fi experiments where I, I forgot the name, but you probably have seen it, but I were bombarded with ads, all virtual stuff all the time. Or like you go shopping and then you get bombarded with virtual stuff. No one wants this, to be clear, right? But think just about you have more contextual information, digital information that can provide you more um, meaningful things in the real world. Uh, but it is persisted at the stage. So this is also an important part about it is, you know, if you're thinking about augmented reality, like the objects you see augmented on top of the real world, they will stay there where they are. They're not going to move when you move your device. They will stay where they are. And this is the, the most important part about it persistence and very good precision so that we can enable these experiences. I think, Botan, you're actually researching, you know, the, the interaction with the eyes, right, and for, for kind of new experiences. But what are all the ways that we can interact with the future of spatial computing? There are two ways to look at it. Is the content physical or the, the embodied or the, the, I would say, the device or the computer is physical or digital? If it's physical, then you can go all the way to the humanoid robot where it has to be just as a human. And then actually as a reference movie would be very much so like, you know, that even the Terminator movies or anything, because they are spatial computing species, if you will, or, you know, autonomous cars. So that has to be very human compatible so that it understands your hand gestures, your body movement, everything. If it's digital, I would argue, and if it's a human using it, I would argue, and hence my, my direction of UI research, it has to have at least one component which is fully hands-free so that you can interact with the content just with your optimally with your brain waves. Having said that, we are not there yet, so the future will be probably that. I would believe that eyes is a, is a very good in-between modus operandi to actually interact with. But there are many other ways, and then I would, I would pass it to Rene because I know that he also has some couple of great ideas. Eye tracking and eye interaction is surely a very important research part. And we see it already in certain devices. If you look at the Quest 2 or other, well, they don't have eye tracking in the Quest 2, right? But they might be getting at some point. Or if you look at the HoloLens 2, they have eye tracking basically in there, uh, which is very important. So I can just roll my eyes and look at things, right? Super important input mechanism. But also your hands are important too, right? Like hand tracking, you have that, for example, with the Quest 2 in a very good way or in a, on a consumer device which was just 
science fiction like five years ago, or you had it in device like a HoloLens, which costs 10 times more, you know what I mean? And so we're getting more that these devices get cheaper by still having these kind of so-called natural user interfaces like hand, eyes, your voice is also very important, especially when we're talking about AI and conversationally AI models where you can have a, a real conversation, not like some of our voice assistants we have today that they say, oh, they are super intelligent, but actually they're not that intelligent. I'm talking about real modern transformer models, like really good AI voice assistants. And this is an important part, but also not just for the input, but we also should think about, um, you know, kind of how can I feel more immersion in these solutions? And if we're, if we're talking about virtual reality, another interesting part about it is, for example, haptic feedback that you can feel virtual objects, you can touch virtual objects, right? Which is impossible, of course, but there is devices you can put on gloves, but there's even more interesting devices that use ultrasound waves to basically emit something in front of you and you can feel a sphere or whatever object you have in front of you, you can feel it. I also have been talking with companies that produce virtual smell, scent. There's a cartridge you can attach to your VR device and then you can smell virtual objects. And if, for example, I have a cup of coffee, I'm holding out my hand, I don't smell it. If I'm holding it below my nose, I smell coffee, right? Virtual reality coffee, if you will. And if I hold it back, I don't smell it. And so we have a lot of senses as humans. And the more we can support these senses, the more immersive the solution will be. And this is, I think, a lot of stuff will be, uh, will be happening in the next couple of years in that regard. In addition to the conversation we had with our guests on today's episode, we asked another expert to provide their insights on the future. Hello, my name is Rémi I'm French, but I've been living in California since the late 90s. I've been working in the field of real-time 3D for my entire career, starting with the work I did for my PhD in Paris and study parallel algorithm in the context of uh, replacing dedicated hardware with more generic processing. I'm currently working as a principal software architect at Vario. Vario is a Finnish startup that has been building the world's most advanced virtual and mixed reality headset available today. How can spatial computing make interaction more natural? Obviously, the devices and technology you currently have to experience spatial computing are not yet convenient for mass adoption. The head-mounted displays are either bulky and heavy, or they have not enough performance to represent reality in a meaningful way. The main dilemma is, is the smaller and lighter the devices are, the less performance we have, and therefore limiting the usefulness. On the other hand, devices like the Vario XL3 are very powerful and can be used in the most advanced spatial computing today, but they require a very powerful and so expensive PC to run the application and drive the head-mounted display. But there is another technology already widespread today that will soon help to overcome this. Virtual teleportation will be built on infinite compute available in what we call the Vario Reality Cloud. Vario has a service that essentially enables perfect visual fidelity and high performance for mobile headsets, as well as phones, laptops, tablets, or any other computing devices. Using reality compute, anybody can stream human eye resolution, wide field of view image in single megabytes per second to any device. Everyone will be able to use Vario Reality Cloud for 5G technology and run existing and future applications in premium quality. BioReality Cloud will be the bridge between the real and the virtual. We will allow you to recreate your surroundings and share them, transcending human communication beyond the physical boundaries. 
Headsets can be light and untethered and still powered by the infinite commuter power, making the interaction more natural. One of the projects we were working on at Fresh was using uh, hand gestures uh, for navigation, using your voice for navigation, using your face for authentication. And that thinking about that confluence and thinking about, we call this project Telemus. It's on our website right now. But the notion was like, hey, if you're on the go with your mobile phone, that, that could be efficient. If you are at work on a computer, that might be efficient. But there's all these in-between states where you might still have a interaction with information, maybe in the car, maybe on the elevator, maybe as you're out in nature, as you're planning uh, with a team where it doesn't make more sense to be so heavy on your, your computer. And so having these additional ways to kind of pull information, see information becomes really exciting. This is something we we're working on a few years ago, but the space has evolved so much in the last few years. I was curious to ask you two, before we kind of talk deeper about the future and what could be, how is spatial computing used today? Especially in the industry, like look at manufacturing and a couple of other industries, like we deployed applications for these. I cannot talk too much because of NDA reasons, but there's a lot of interesting things you can do there. One example is as simple as remote assistance these days. Like you have an expert, a domain expert that is not on site. For example, you have a complex machine that needs to be repaired, right? Um, they get on a phone call typically, but now if you have devices like a HoloLens, you put this on, and you have a front-facing camera and you can stream that directly from your first-person view just to the domain expert that has to could be anywhere in the world. And this is providing a lot of return of investments for clients, especially these days when you know travel is being reduced and in the last couple of years with COVID and so on. These gained a lot of momentum, in fact. But there's also, of course, other industries. We see a lot of training applications, a lot of where you can, in fact, provide contextual information to the user. So, for example... You can train them on the actual machine or in the actual object, and you can augment that with virtual items that show you the training steps, for example, right? But not just 2D, like on a screen, but actually three-dimensional as 3D objects that can blend in and can show you some much more immersive training solutions that people also remember much more. For, for VR trainings, for example, we're also enhancing that with haptic feedback, like I mentioned initially, like full body suit haptic feedback, but also for your hands. So, for example, if you're doing training and you have to navigate in a virtual room, you got to make sure that you don't bounce into objects, right? And if you're wearing a haptic bodysuit, you will actually feel it on your arm, for example, if you run into something, right? And so increasing the immersion is very, very useful for these kind of use cases. Um, I could talk many more use cases, but definitely, in, especially in the professional industry where you see a return of investment. Another, another maybe last quick example is, since we talked about NASA already a little bit, for the Orion space capsule, the manufacturing, I think it's done by Lockheed Martin or so. But anyhow, there is a case where they're using the HoloLens for a quality control, and they have to check all the bolts on the space capsule, right, if, they, if they're manufactured correctly. And what they do is now with the HoloLens, they put this on, and they see an overlay right in front of them, and they save, I think, 80% of the time. Like, this is ridiculous. They reduce a full shift to 45 minutes in a task. And so this can scale quite a bit in certain industries, and there's a lot of a return of investment already. Of course, consumer market, we see some things like, uh, you know, certain consumer applications that people are using. But I think the real return of investment right now is, is definitely in the, in the enterprise world. Yeah, I mean, in a broad sense, let's say the consumer, there are a couple of glasses already which have cameras in it. So, of course, uh, there was Snap with two or three uh, iterations. And then most recently, I think 
Meta and then what was the uh, company? They released that uh, you can you can roll out with your glasses. And of course, there was Bose. I think it was Ray-Ban. That was Ray-Ban. So those are spatial computing devices because they understand not to the pre- pre- precise place where they are, but actually in, let's say, where they are in the world, for instance. And then, by the way, I think 1 billion users just started to use or are using uh, AR on their phone, which is then, then I would say, a pretty neat number, although these are typically nice to have or fun experiences, not necessarily the must-have just yet. In the enterprise, I think enterprises right now, as Rene pointed out, is one of the great users where money is involved. And there is a, I would say, straight to the point optimization or something very, very useful hasn't been done before, like quality control, or I would say training will be huge. So there will be some of those points where you can train an entire new fleet of workers without being in the space just now. And then when they show up on day one, they know where they are, what to do all of a sudden, or there is, you know, uh, or they go to a, a big oil refinery or a rig or something. So enterprise is clearly the very first one of using it. Having said that, this is minuscule. This is, I would say, a grain on the beach. It's just unimaginably small compared to what it is actually. So we are not even in the in the early, early, it's like before the early, what it is about to come. You know, often with great technology innovation, it comes on the heels of problems, you know, serious problems. And Botan, I noticed, noticed that you, you, know, you have a special emphasis in some of your research on socio-technical challenges. I'm curious, like, what do you guys see as some of the big problems or challenges that this will resolve? Yeah, so for the societal aspects, I mean, I think if, if we're thinking about head-mounted devices like AR glasses, we might all remember the glass hole kind of a thing, right? And so this is important. Like if you walk down the streets and with all the privacy issues we have today, uh, we need to ensure that people feel comfortable if they're actually wearing those. Maybe it is also the form factor that is definitely needed to get closer to a smaller form factor like my glasses I'm wearing. Here. If you're just listening to the podcast, you cannot see, but I'm wearing normal glasses. And so getting to this form factor, you know, where it's less intrusive and, you know, less kind of, hey, there's a big camera, uh, you know, recording me all the time. It's especially important, like for certain markets here in Europe, for example, like in Germany in particular, like like no one would accept this here, also in a work setting. And so this is a, a very important aspect to solve. I would say spatial computing is a new chance to do things right. And then what I mean right by make it more inclusive. So many technologies and when new ages or new eras are coming, typically the technologists or companies or whoever is the, I would say, the wind pushers or wind makers, they say, this is how it is. And then there you have it. And then all of a sudden, we as users have to bend around technology so or bend around engineering or have to adapt to it. And I would say that when spatial computing comes, and this is part of my research, in fact, that's why I'm so excited about it, we have a chance to do something different. So um, how can we bake into it like privacy by design or inclusion by design and security and safety by design? So I would argue that we are at a very early age and that's uh, one of the major, I would say this is a high level. Uh, What are the problems that many of our technologies are not inclusive, right? So I think this is a number one chance that we be more inclusive. Second, uh, to be more specific, I would say people could finally enjoy content who, let's say, don't have even hands or people who actually don't have 
certain capabilities and they can also now have some some extra or more. Or even we can augment the very user and then have an extra capability and then we haven't touched yet. Why is it so exciting? I believe that it's exciting because it augments the human itself and the human intellect. And I would say to, I would hate to say it if it's just another gadget where we are consuming more content instead of interacting with it, right? And interact with each other. So uh, when it comes to problems, I would say that number two, so one is inclusion, and I would say that's a pretty big one already. Number two is to be able to actually connect with each other. Because right now, what we are seeing that we are starting to separate from each other, we are within like eco chambers. And I hope that spatial computing, because the content is spatial, would be a chance to connect together with other fellow citizens and people around the world. So I would say that these are two I wish it will connect. Mm -hmm. And of course, the overarching theme is human augmentation so that we can be more with technology. How do you see spatial computing kind of differ from the metaverse? Is it analogous? Is it, you know, I think that the the notion of like the 3D mapping of objects and sensors, obviously that could, that could go hand in hand with the metaverse, but is spatial computing sort of a broader term than the metaverse? How do you see those two being related? Yeah, it's, it's, so metaverse is, has been greatly confused uh, by a mega company because the metaverse originally meant very, very different what Zuckerberg means by metaverse. So the very Neil Stephenson metaverse is very different from what Facebook says. And then I believe that even nobody wants to have any of those two for real. So I would circle back to giving to the name of but spatial computing is a very technical term and a technical expression. And I like much more Tony Paris's definition when it is just going to be the continuation of the internet, but this time spatial in a way that this is really open, it's really connecting us. And then whatever happens in the space in a digital manner has its very real effects on us, hence has to be very well taken care of, hence it's immersive, hence it's joyful and augmenting the human. So in other words, we are connecting the digital reality with the physical reality at once in real time so that we can enjoy space with digital content without having trouble such as a heavy device or what's not. So if that is metaverse, all game, whatever was, of course, there's a dystopian metaverse in the book. You don't want to have that, right? There's a marketing corporate metaverse by one company. I don't want that either. So I'm really curious what the term will be because I would bet that it's not going to be metaverse. It's something else. And there's a great discussion. I would greatly advise to follow the, the XR Guild in Silicon Valley of course, it's a very open uh, one. So I would say that this is very early to say how it compares to. I would like to say that spatial computing is a technical description of how it functions and what it does. And then how it will be, I don't know yet. I don't think anyone does. <laughs> I will go as far as saying that spatial computing is possibly one of the best tools we have to improve our relationship with Mother Earth and fellow inhabitants. I think the more this technology is deployed to the people, the best chances we have to change our behavior. I understand that some have already given up and want to flee and establish new colonies on other planets, but I think with the right tools, we can do a much better job understanding the impact of our actions and make the right decisions. The first important step in fixing an issue is recognizing the issue exists. If it's not visible, maybe it doesn't exist. What best than spatial computing to provide up-to-date information about how things are impacting positively or negatively the environment? 
This will provide a way for everyone to observe the issues that otherwise are busily hidden from our eyes. Take, for example, global warming. Buildings and construction together account for over a third of carbon dioxide emissions. I would love to be able to see while I'm visiting a, a city or building to know which part of which buildings are the least energy efficient, for example. That would definitely impact my behavior and the places I would spend time and money at. Talking about global warming, another immediate impact of spatial company is the capability to bring places to people, rather than having to bring people to places. This means a lot less travel and transportation since it is possible to digitalize places and stream them over to wherever the user is. So that we use less energy than having to burn fuel to physically move people. And transportation is responsible for about a third of greenhouse gas emission and world oil consumption. So another example where a special company can have a huge impact to the world. Let's shift to the future a little bit. Um, why you guys are so excited about the space. You know, what do you think some practical applications could be at home or at the office as we think about, you know, having more spatial computing? We understand the capabilities, but if we fast forward to the future, why is this so exciting? Renee, um, what are your thoughts? Maybe you could pick one, Homer or the office, and, and Botan can take the other one. Yeah, well, if I, if I look at the professional workspace and the office, which is what I'm mainly focused on, the, um, I think... You know, we, we just are thinking about headsets all the time. And I don't think this is the end goal. I rather see it that we have walls behind us that are basically holographic displays or volumetric displays. And I'm not going to name companies, but there are certain companies that are working on these kind of large displays. And just think about you will have a meeting room in the future where the walls are volumetric three-dimensional displays where you don't need to put on any glasses, but you can talk with your colleagues that are worldwide somewhere and you really feel like they were sitting there this comes straight out of certain science fiction movies but this is happening we already have these smaller screen sizes these 3d volumetric displays um, happening at 20 inch or so and i think now even larger but the goal is really to build wall-sized 3d volumetric displays and then we will have really immersive meetings without having to put on any silly glasses Let's assume that everything works out, meaning there is a great device, it, it's very comfortable to wear, or uh, the interaction is, is nailed, uh, the robots are really interacting with us as they should, and there is the infrastructure, meaning that uh, they can communicate with data, as, as no latency or low latency, and so on and so forth. So let's assume everything plays out, and they have the same chance as us to understand spaces. I would say that in this case, the digital entities will be like us, uh, very difficult to distinguish. I would believe that we will have avatars which are fully self-aware and uh, interacting with spaces. I would believe that not only that, but we will be hopefully enabled to interact with content and especially information and data never before, meaning that we can interact with one million research answers and, then, and, and try to find what we really would like to pursue. Because today, because of the screen size, you literally get five top answers what the algorithm thinks you should be consuming. So when it comes to spatial computing, now we can put content into 3D space. So I would argue that whatever is digitally available today, I hope that in 20 years time, it will be a, a part of our physical life in a way which is humane. And I would like to give you a very concrete example. If you think the most 
concentrated spaces of information uh, that is a library. And yet in a library, because it went through the iteration and evolution of how to interact with content and data and information, you feel very calm. There's a system, there's an assistant, of course, and so on and so forth. So when you wanted before to go to information, then you went to a library and then you knew that this you will find. And in fact, you felt good about it. You even went to study there, right? So this today, because of this silly little uh, interface, is just not possible. So I call this the, the keyhole to the library, where the librarian is holding the book very, very fast and then makes it, you know, brings you the content. So I think it will just unleash everything which is online and it will materialize and be embodied. And when that happens, we will be finally able to interact and exchange and retrieve and have and own this information and experience properly. So at last, we will be one with the digital content, but that could have dystopian parts as well. So we have to be researching and working on it. What about healthcare and kind of, you know, medical space, you know, this notion of like saving lives or, or doing things better, always that, that, that there's an impetus where it's like when technology can aid in that, then uh, it can also be uh, sped up. So uh, do you have any thoughts on healthcare? I know we talked a little bit about entertainment and manufacturing, but what about what about that space? Yeah, healthcare, definitely. We already see quite some interesting stuff happening in the healthcare space. For example, there were even the first surgeries already being done while using special computing devices. And the benefit that uh, you know surgeons see there is already existing, where basically, for example, they do some certain, let's say, a spine surgery or whatever it is, where they need to have an MRI or CT scan right next to them, where they need to take a look at. And so instead of looking on a 2D monitor, they can now have it with these 3D stereo glasses projected right in front of them. It doesn't have to be on the patient. Some solution actually projected this, let's say, the CT scan from before right on the patient. With some uh, extra tracking devices, you can get really to a closer precision they uh, surgeons need which is millimeter range or sub-millimeter range, in fact. And this is still a challenge, of course. But even without overlaying directly on the patient, you can just overlay it on the side. And again, you're wearing basically a display, a semi-transparent glasses where you can still see the real world, but also these virtual objects. And you can have an infinite kind of a screen in front of you with all this information. Um, another aspect in healthcare is, of course, also telemedicine, right? That certain, as you probably know, right, certain rural areas have a problem that there is not enough health personnel that basically lives there. And so they have a shortage for this. And what we also see are solutions emerging for telemedicine and not just on the phone or on a 2D video call, but much more immersively. Where do you see kind of spatial computing impacting uh, education in the future? The good answer or the honest answer, I don't know. Because right now the education is still the Victorian setting. You know, the teacher is here and the people are laid out there. And then all the solutions I'm seeing currently is trying to do the same thing, but digitally. And this is when a realm is changing. Uh, I think we will have to reinvent education in many ways. In fact, some of the decisions will be what needs to be taught in person and what is okay to be taught remotely or digitally. And then where is this fine line or borderline of, uh, and then there is, you mentioned scaling. I mean, one of the biggest deal about spatial computing that finally you can scale communication, you can scale interaction, you can scale and then as telemedicine is one of the one of the examples. So 
I think when if we talk about 20 years out, the real question will be, as already today, they are AI teachers or AI-based uh, systems. Uh, in spatial computing, you put pop on a glasses, either VR or MR glasses, what's not, but I would believe that if you are at home, the, the teacher could come and sit down in front of you and you would perceive the teacher as if it would be a person. That's where it comes a tricky question, you know, because all of a sudden there will be a person or an algorithm or whoever controlling that thing. So when it comes to education, I think education itself will need to be, it's going to be a hand-in-hand experiment. So I don't know where it is going. I just, all I know that is it, the teachers themselves will be more and more either augmented or helped or replaced. I mean, of course, these are very, very, I would say the very drastic say to thing, but but say but technically speaking, it will be possible. Um, I just want to give one example, which I think for me personally would be really amazing. And um, I don't know if anyone of you probably all had advanced math, right? Like linear algebra, all of this stuff. And it was really dry and boring when I learned it. But it really made click for me when I first started to do 3D computer graphics because I could use vector algebra. I could do some fancy 3D things or 2D in the beginning, right? And I think this is a big chance for education to motivate students more. And you can give them some devices. Of course, not all day. We don't want to sit them dystopian with a VR headset in classroom, right? This is, of course, not the vision. But for certain things, like especially when, for example, they talk about math or physics, like just think about you can visualize invisible things like a magnetic field in three dimension right in front of you. I've seen a gentleman from Japan, he, he, a physics teacher. He built a Holland's app where he was augmenting, like let's say a rod of a rod of metal or iron or something. It was a mag- magnet actually. He had a real magnet, and he was augmenting that so you could see the magnetic field around it. And you could also you know, bring in other devices; it would dynamically change. So what I'm trying to say is, it's a we live in three dimensions. And we teach in two dimensions mostly, but um, we have the opportunity with this kind of stuff to bring the third dimension into education and to make it much more realistic and much more you know, feasible and also more interesting for students. And we need students, in, in especially in math and, and other categories. And you know, STEM, as you all know, it's a big issue all over the world. And uh, maybe it's part of the motivation, right? Let's get folks better motivated and they will learn for themselves because they see the, the, the benefit of it. It seems like spatial computing is is sort of the hybrid of being able to be disconnected and connected at the same time, right? Um, curious if you guys have more thoughts on that about how the future of spatial computing helps us disconnect more from technology or just become, you know, have more of our natural environment. Any other thoughts about that? Well, the way I see it, there is a trajectory and the trend between the human species and information at large. And then before we were willing to take the ride and the drive to the information centers, beat, you know, back then the, the, the market where you could get the, pick, the, the fresh news or, of course, once a week to the church and then the library and all that. Later, you went to the newsstand to get the information, but then came the radio. So then you had a radio at home now, the television, and all of a sudden the information, I mean, the interface to information, which was prior, let's say, the book or another person when there were no books. Now it's a mobile device. So now as we are talking about throughout spatial computing that is actually kind of migrating closer and closer to your head. So I'm afraid to say it, but I'm just seeing it, that we humans are keen to be closer and closer to information. Hence, disconnect will be a bigger and bigger problem. So, or I would just be positive, bigger and bigger challenge. So on that note, 
I would say that when I can take off my glasses or whatever device and I can disconnect and it is just that easy, well, throw away your phone for a few hours and it's just that easy, right? So it's not even on your body or your, you will have rings or whatever, you know, on your body or even your clothes could be spatially aware. So I'm saying that this, this so will spatial computing as a phenomena help us to disconnect from technology? I would say no. Will it help us to get rid of devices and then reduce the machine stuff? I would say probably, because just as the phone, I mean, the very mobile phone, now you don't have a flashlight and, and, and so on. You have so many things you don't have, right? Because you, your phone does it. Is it a good thing? I don't know. But right now there are companies drilling your skull and then wanting to have the thing in your head already. You know, there is no... <laughs> so the real question is, what do we humans want to do with this possibility to connect and interact with information and what i'm seeing and observing we're just so keen to connect to it and be with it so maybe one day i mean we'll be just one and then the fermi paradox is real and people just said okay let's just be in a box somewhere in space and then i don't know so short answer i don't think spatial computing is helping us to disconnect from technology or the digital world at large i see a great chance that technology will be more humane so Let's say I don't need to have a screen just to interact with something or someone. I don't need to carry a heavy device. I don't need to have like like a you know like desktop computer to do something which I can only do on the desktop computer. So I would say that the promise of this, uh, spatial computing is to at last making the digital world and uh, everything around it more humane, human centric, and then compatible with us. Two years is a long time considering how fast and exponentially faster the technology is evolving. Things like quantum computing, patients, and maybe a sentient AI, brand computer interfaces, we're all going to have a huge impact on everything, including on spatial computing. So I won't adventure so far with my crystal ball and will stay within the next decade. Also, I'm not willing to wait 20 years to experience good spatial computing applications. As far as spatial computing being used at home or the office, the answer is quite easy. It will be used at both places, just like the mobile phone is commonly used in both places. Maybe introduced in one and brought the, to the office or the other way around, but, but it will be very used everywhere. On the technology side, I would like to talk about the difference between see-through and pass-through technology. See-through technology is using lenses that allows direct observation of the real world through the lenses while inserting additional virtual objects in the user field of view. Video pass-through, on the other hand, digitalizes the real, in real time the world around you before merging it with virtual objects and presenting the user with a pure synthetic image. Going back to the example where virtual objects are added to the real world for testing uh, purposes, we can observe that this um, scenario can be implemented whether using see-through or pass-through. However, I want to point out the vast superiority that pass-through has. With see-through, it is possible to add on top of reality, but not alter reality. For example, in order to study the impact of adding a new object in a room, it is important to visualize the impact on the overall lighting. The added object will add its shadow to the real world. It will add its reflection to the world mirrors and shiny surfaces. It potentially add lighting into the real world. So as you can see, it's not possible to correctly add virtual objects into the real world without disturbing the entire scene. Another example is the capability, especially when using conjunction with AI. 
capability to for video pass through to filter out reality. It, there are already applications to that that exist where all the furniture can be removed from a room without physically moving anything. This allows the user to test out new furnishing without having the incumbency of having already furniture in the room. And um, see-through technology can't do that. So in short, pass-through provides the user with superpower. So I would predict that pass-through will be the dominant technology in spatial computing in the future. This said, it will take some time to figure out how to build wearable pass-through devices. So I expect to see more see-through devices in the near future, but in the longer term, I would think they all be replaced by pass-through devices. Other than pure technology consideration, uh, the main improvement I would expect during the next decade is the inclusion of people interaction into spatial company. Collaboration and sharing experiences are essential for any kind of technology to reach full usefulness. This will enable bringing several people to the same physical location at the same time, uh, so real-time interaction with the real world and real people. This can be referred generally as virtual teleportation, where several people can be teleported into a real location. For example, this can be used to bring an expert to observe and help with an issue happening in the real world, or just to bring many people together to experience uh, an event, such as a concert. I would think that virtual teleportation has the potential to be the killer app of pastoral mixed reality and you know, spatial company. What about some of the dilemmas, the ethical dilemmas? You guys mentioned security, sort of privacy. What are some of those things and kind of designing everything with intent now while it's in sort of the formation stage? What are some of those dilemmas that we need to be mindful of and, you know, put a lot of energy into? Yeah, so privacy first. This is, needs to be one of the, the first things when designing solutions. Like we need to think about it, especially when we're thinking about spatial computing. And basically it's driven by computer vision which means analyzing camera frames. And so you want to make sure that when you do this, like when you use your phone or whatever device you have to scan an environment around you, that this data is, first of all, securely stored, if at all the storing of the data is needed, and um, that no one can do malicious things with this. And I like if I look at certain large tech players where the main business model is, is advertisements and, you know, where the revenue comes from, I don't know if I would trust them. And so trust will become a really, really important thing, even more than it is today, where it's already very important. But one example to give is Microsoft Azure Spatial Anchors technology is one implementation where you can put virtual anchors in the real world. And I know the team pretty well, the research team, they're based out of Zurich. And they put a huge emphasis, and if you look at some of the papers from computer vision conferences, on privacy. So what they do is when you scan the environment around you, they process the camera frames locally on the device, and they don't send the camera frames into the cloud and store it there. They only extract the relevant features, so-called feature points. And they're not even just storing the feature points as they are. They're storing them in a kind of an obfuscated way, so that it's very but pretty much impossible to reverse engineer from the data that is stored in order to later on localize to get to the real world situation. And so this is, this, these things need to be key because otherwise this will just fail because like we need to make sure this is a secure and a space where privacy is also maintained. And I'm not even getting into the whole aspect of avatars, right? Like this is a, of course, a different part. I'm just talking about 
the real spatial computing aspect of this. But yeah, this is huge. Like this is a very important po topic that we also probably need certain policies and constraints that will ensure that you know folks don't get havoc with this. Do you know of any groups that are working on those policies right now? Yes. So, for example, you have the uh, Metaverse Foundation Europe. This is one that was just founded. They are looking into how to make you know sure that these metaverse solutions will have a, a, you know will maintain certain values that are yeah common to Europe, for example, like privacy, security, and whatnot. And uh, of course, there's other standard forums that are evolving, like the Metaverse Standards Forum, um, mainly driven by the Kronos Group and a couple of others. And uh, yes, so there's a uh, fortunately a lot of folks are thinking about it. Actually, just to add two more, I would say associations or, or formations is the OpenXR and the XR Guild, that, that I'm just saying that there are more and more and more groups popping up saying like, hey, values first, what are the philosophies and what are the things we want to achieve with this? And then let's try to make norms, uh, rules, and so on and so forth, and policies so that we can have to get it right or at least give a chance to it, right? Because we nobody really knows how it is going to evolve and how the consumer wants to, wants to use it at last. But maybe there is one very specific which is, I mean, I would be more worried about. Because today there is an understanding when do you give a mobile phone to your child? That means when do you put into his or her hand the digital connection to everything else? And of course you say like, okay, I'm going to limit it. So up to a certain age, whatever that age is, he or she won't get that kind of access. But when you're going to put classes, VR headsets onto a child, their fairy tales are a thing. And then, of course, it's right now we are laughing. Oh, well, there is a fairy. You know, there is a fairy. And they, they believe there is a fairy, right? Now, in this time around, give it 20 years, that fairy will be not only indistinguishable from, the, uh, from a bird, but it will be more intelligent than you know, any human because it will have the AI capability. It will understand. It will emphasize. It can manipulate. So all of a sudden, that kind of digitality or digital reality becomes reality. And let's say us, we, oh, we are grown-ups, but trust me, when you're going to drive and there's a child walks in front of you, your basic instinct will be just, you know, so a hacking a person will be, you know, even more devastating. But let's say that you have a security system, but when do you give your glasses to your child so that kind of fairy tales in the books and television becomes reality. Because I would argue that some child will say, I don't want to have the, the, the real dog. I just want to have a digital dog. Because, you know, for certain reasons. I mean, you don't have to take it down to walk, for instance, and so on. And it knows a lot more. And then it becomes basically your memory avatar or what's not. So I would say that there are humongous ethical and even evolutionary questions and challenges because it will tweak the course what we are going to walk down from then on. Because right now you can close a book you can finish a film. Shut a device. You just shut the device or you can shut the experience. Let's say a theater is it's also a virtual, virtualized storytelling, right? But with classes or VR headsets or what's not, but I believe classes will be ultimately VR headsets also. It's a very hard one to take it off and say, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just leave it behind. So I would argue that the biggest challenge is there when and how we are going to introduce it to our daily life and especially our children. Put it in context of kids is a great example for us to be diligent about how we prepare for those issues. So, so as a final question here, like what advice would you give to your kids as it relates to if you have kids or maybe it could be your students 
you know, what advice would you give to them for this future? I actually have five kids, in fact, yes. So I'm very aware of the, the issues that are rising with all of this. And, uh, well, my advice for the kids is, well, first of all, we they have smartphones, the older ones, and we we lock them down quite a bit. And I use applications to control it a little bit so that they don't spend too much time. But the advice would for them, well, don't be afraid too much, but also be mindful of what you share online. Because everything you share online, everything you record, everything you post in social media, you never know who's going to use that and you never know what's going to happen with it. That is the case right now and that will always be the case and will just be even more important in the future. Is you got to be mindful with these devices, what they can do. They can create great content and I'm always tell them, hey, of course, take photos, do videos, whatever, do content creation. Don't just consume. Don't just use these applications to consume because these applications are fantastic and these, these uh, devices are fantastic for content creation. And so be creative and use them as a tool instead of just as a content consumption mechanism, right? To follow on Rene's uh, thoughts, I mean, creation and then focus anything which is around creation of either the content or thoughts or just communication. So I would say the creative industry has a humongous opportunity right here because this has to be reinvented, formalized, make and made. Having said that, if it's a young student, let's say in, in his or her 20s, I would say try to pick and follow those tools and understand those tools and how they work, which make this possible. So, you know, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, you would say coding. And then it, people didn't pick it up because what is it for? You could roll, roll back and even at, at a certain point in time, reading and writing was a technology, right? <laughs> and then, so at this time, I would believe the tools which enable the, the user to create and express his or herself so that they don't become just pushed onto them and they become consumers, but they can also express themselves so they can extend themselves. That's great. I love how we're getting back to kind of these nuggets, which is where technology can help us or can hurt us, right? Like, you know, we talked about these two opposites here. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about our purpose, like on life, it seems like as human beings, this notion to create, this notion to connect with other human beings, the relationship side, the creation side, the knowledge, you know, gathering knowledge and becoming smarter about things. Like that's where technology has so much potential at this flip side, it has, it can hurt us. Like if we're just consuming things, it could hurt our relationships. If we're not getting out and connecting with people also in person, it could hurt our knowledge if, you know, or ability to create if we're just, just consuming. So I think that, I think that if we think about like the potential here, it's the potential for greatness. It's also the potential for, for hurt. And that's why it's so important, I think, to be talking about this now and saying, how do we participate and make an impact such that we can see that uh, more of the benefits versus the cons that could that could hurt the the capability of the future. It's great chatting with you both, um, gathering your insights, gathering your all these nuggets. I think there's some really profound comments, and really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It was a great conversation, and I think we could talk for many more hours. <laughs> The Future of Podcasts is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for The Future of an Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.